This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes and set aside time to explore the reality behind a major cultural event. Today we'll be talking about Betsy DeVos's nomination as our next Secretary of Education and all the different education issues that her appointment raises. I'm Morgan Lee and I'm an assistant editor at Christianity Today and I'm joined by Mark Alley, as usual, CT's editor-in-chief. Hey. How's it going? It's going well. We just came from another meeting which was also really lively. Yeah. So I feel like I have a lot of energy. There you go. And one of the things we talked about was the topic at hand. Absolutely, we did. So I'm like feeling even more amped for there this conversation. Who do, who's on here to talk with us today? Well, we have Dr. Andrea Ramirez, who is the Executive Director of the Faith and Education Coalition for the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference. She's a uh, remarkable woman who I've worked with in many capacities, and she comes with just a boatload of knowledge and experience in the area of education. She earned a degree in business administration and an MBA from Dallas Baptist University and a PhD from Regent University in Virginia. So she's going to bring a lot to the conversation today. Welcome, Andrea. Hi, guys. Great to be here. Great to have you as well. Where are you based out of? Where are you calling us from? I am in Austin, technically Cedar Park, just about 20 minutes north of Austin, Texas. You know, in, in Texas, we don't say in Texas, we just give the city, right? Because we just are like that here in Texas. Yeah. Everyone should know the last part of that. And then people <laughs> from Austin just assume Austin is the center of the universe. So what else is there more to True. say? I mean, come on. <laughs> Do you have a particular sports team in Texas that you like? I like the Mavs, Dallas Mavs. I'm closer to the Spurs now that I live in Austin, but I'm I'm definitely a Mavs fan. All right. So earlier this week, Betsy DeVos became our country's 11th Secretary of Education after a long confirmation process. Uh, a staunch believer in vouchers and school choice in her initial hearing, DeVos was criticized after she didn't know the difference between academic growth and proficiency. And she was officially confirmed this week after Vice President Mike Pence broke a 50-50 tie in the Senate. That was after two Republicans joined Democrats in voting her down. So DeVos's credentials aren't in public education. As many have noted, she attended a private school and her family's foundation. Her husband is basically the former CEO of Amway, which is a multi-level marketing company, has given primarily to Christian organizations and Christian private schools. Notably, beyond mentoring at a public school, she has never attended, taught, or sent children, sent her children to public schools. So DeVos will take her position just a little over a year after the passage of the Every Student Succeeds Act. This is passed in to late 2015 with overwhelming bipartisan support, and the ESSA replaces the No Child Left Behind Act. It also shifts a significant amount of educational oversight from the federal government to the states. This is the time of the show where we often give a gut check or our initial reaction to something. In this case, DeVos's confirmation and how you feel about that. Well, it struck me is that the confirmation itself and the process and the final vote is a metaphor for the divide we have in our country. It was an absolutely 50-50 divide on whether to affirm her as Secretary of uh, Education, and it had to be broken by a vice president's vote the first time in our country's history that that had to happen, which just suggests whether it's refugees or immigration or torture or 101 things that Donald Trump and his administration are promoting at this point, there's just a deep divide in our nation. I was actually a little bit surprised about how 
divisive it was, given that normally whoever the president nominates to the cabinet ends up being relatively a shoe in. There'll be somewhat of like a grilling moment. Um, but usually that person's confirmation process is not in doubt, with some exceptions. I do remember under President Bush, he had nominated someone who had employed someone who was undocumented. And that particular nominee decided to basically quit the nomination process. Withdraw. Through, yeah. Withdraw after not really wanting to, to speak about that or feeling like that was going to just be too much of a political dilemma. I will say that it, it was shocking to me when I learned, I guess, of how little inv- direct involvement DeVos had had in public schools. I, I just was, I was confused almost like why her name was even floated in this particular area, given that there's plenty of people who have worked in public schools their entire life that I would imagine people would imagine that they would have the qualifications to do this job. So when I saw that, I guess I was less surprised about her experience. And and people in my life that are involved in the public schools are generally very passionate about having other people who are giving them directions know what their particular situation is. And so understanding the frustration and anger at having someone who didn't have experiences, you know, I guess that wasn't as shocking to me. Yeah. So I guess, Andrea, if we could just start out the conversation, if you can tell us a little bit about your thoughts and feelings on DeVos's appointment, and then we'll get into some bigger conversations about education at large. Yeah. So I think that Mark hit it on the mark that there is definitely a deep divide within the country. I think that the approaches towards education equity um, are different. So as I was watching the hearings, I firmly believe that each of the senators, whether they were on the left or the right, care about the kids in our nation, but that the strategies that they go about doing that differ. We have to think forward. And Secretary DeVos is now our Secretary of Education. And and I think that the church has a large part in strengthening public schools and better understanding a new voice that's entering this conversation. I know that there's certainly pushback about the fact that she hasn't been, um, hasn't sent her own children to public school, hasn't taught and didn't go to public school. But in addition to that, I think that there is, this isn't talked about as much, but she has mentored in public schools. So she hasn't been completely absent. And I'm not for or against the nomination as it states, but I do feel like our, our perspective has to be thinking about the marginalized children and, and what we can do as a church to help support strengthen public schools in light of the fact that school choice is, is going to be promoted. So I don't think it has to be an either or. I think it needs to be a both and. Many people were surprised at her nomination because of her lack of experience in this area. But it does, it is one of a piece with Trump's overall ethos about what it means to govern and that he, he he's into disruption. And so he's constantly nominating people who don't seem to have an expert in an area, I think precisely because he wants things to shake things up. I mean, he himself is, is the example of a of disruption. He has no experience in government whatsoever, and now he's the president of the United States. It's just part of his his whole way of doing stuff. So in that regard, it's not surprising that he uh, chose someone who had very little experience in public schools because he wants to disrupt and shake things up, see what happens. I, I think it hit a nerve because, Morgan, as you pointed out, most teacher friends that I know don't even want a principal who hasn't had classroom experience, much less, you know, those that are in leadership on a federal level. And so I think that it it did hit a nerve. But I'm kind of curious. I do have this curiosity about um, what her strategy and approach will be, because I do think she's looking at our public school education from different lenses. And maybe that approach, I'm just interested to see what the Lord does with that. Uh, again, I don't, as I was looking at it, I, I understood both sides were those who felt positive about her and those that were very concerned about this lack of personal touch with public schools. So I can see both sides of it. I just think 
at this point, we know that over 90% of America's children are in public schools. So I think that as believers, we need to engage and, and think afresh about our personal engagement with strengthening the public schools, whether our children are at those public schools or not. I just wanted to remind people that Andrea has actually written an article for us that's on our website right now that goes into a lot of these topics that we'll be talking about today. And one of the things, Andrea, that you talk about in your piece is this Every Student Succeeds Act. I'm wondering if you can just say a little bit more about this, because it seems like this is something that's going on as we speak. As I mentioned earlier, it was passed in 2015, and it replaces No Child Left Behind. But maybe that will just give some of our listeners a better sense of the public education landscape overall right now. Sure. So, you know, President Obama referred to it as the Christmas miracle because it was passed in December of 2015. And it was, like you said uh, earlier in the podcast, it was widely supported as a bipartisan effort. And so I think that there was some backlash that we saw over the last few years um, from states saying, look, we are the closest to these students, we, the local community leaders, the state leaders. We know our students and we want to have decision making ability as it pertains to assessments and um, standards. And we don't want government pressure to incentivize us to adopt certain standards. We, we wanna make these decisions on our own. So the Every Student Succeeds Act re allowed for that. They allowed, it, it clarified any disputes about what the state's role was in K through 12 education. And it provided states that decision-making ability, or at least clarified it. Because in some cases, I think the states just wanted validation of their role. And, and so ESSA did that. The Every Student Succeeds Act did um, allow for states to make those decisions about assessments and standards without government pressure or incentivizing towards a certain direction. It did limit the power of the Secretary of Education and the Department of Education. 2017 is the year that states are going to submit their plans. They're, they're have holding public forums to find out how they can incorporate accountability and transparency in their reporting and what their state vision plan is. So they're, they're compiling data from, from speaking to community leaders. And, and we're really advocating that all community stakeholders are present because sometimes what would happen is you may have a couple of seats at the, at the decision-making table about these plans. And let's say the mayor was invited to, to fill these three seats. So he may select friends um, that would support his views on education. But what we're advocating for is that instead of filling seats like that, where we have like-minded individuals, that we are ensuring that all of the community is represented. So that in churches being such a cornerstone of many of our communities across the country, that we have an evangelical voice or a church leader voice at that table to say, this is what we're seeing in our congregations within the community. And so 2017 is a, a big year as it pertains to the Every Student Succeeds Act, because states are submitting their plans, but those plans do have to be approved by Secretary DeVos. And so that's where the relationship between the states and the federal government come together, is the states are determining the plans, and then Secretary DeVos will have to approve or deny those plans. And so that that is a part of the process. I do think that, you know, we, we want to ensure that all students are being treated fairly. So we there is some concern with, with states keeping standards high and and working collaboratively with other states because what we want to avoid is 
Kentucky, let's say, having a set of standards that are completely different than Colorado. So if you have a military family and that military family moves from Kentucky to Colorado or Kentucky to California, that student isn't left behind or ahead um, because of the state that they lived in or the district that they were in. So we, we want to ensure that that states are communicating with one another. And that's where the Department of Education can be helpful um, in, in ensuring that there's a, a built-in accountability with those states and, and raising up best practices where states are seeing um, students doing well with, with plans that they're putting in place. Are there any other kind of drawbacks that you see to the federal government deciding to take a big step back here? I'm concerned a bit about ensuring that there are not remnants of prejudice in certain states that could influence the way some children are treated within that state. And um, I think that that we have to be cautious. And I, I think that that's where the role of the church is so critical. The Lord helps our antennas to be up for the least among us, for those children that don't have voice representation, right? So if, if you have, for example, Hispanic students who in some cases they have parents who may or may not speak English, and so they need additional support and additional resources. That's not true of every Hispanic, but there are Spanish-speaking Hispanic homes where that is the case. And I think the church can come alongside and serve families right where they're at and, and ensure that if there is racism, if there is prejudice, that the church is standing in the gap. I think encouraging that every state has a strong vision for all the students in that state is critical. If you don't have an advocate at the table for a certain part of the the solution or just someone or children in that community or someone who understands the felt needs of the families that are struggling or that are um, lower performing in proficiency and or in growth, then you need an advocate that understands and is looking in the eyes of those parents to better understand what their needs are. When I, when I think about the church and at large or Christians in America, I know that many Christians have taken all different types of educational approaches, how they decided to educate their children. So some have decided to send their kids to private school. Some have decided to homeschool. Some have decided to go to charter schools. I know in my neighborhood, I have quite a few neighbors who are Christians. Many of the families there do not send their kids to the district school. They send them to the magnet schools, um, which are public schools, but are not the ones that are in particularly in the neighborhood. I'm wondering if it's possible for Christians to still support their public schools, um, regardless of whether their kids are attending these schools. Absolutely. You know, I'm a product of both public and private school. My mom homeschooled my brothers. They are also products of public and private school. My husband grew up in inner city Houston, and he and I are a founding family of a public charter school. We love education and are advocates for all forms of education. I think that it boils down to families asking the father what assignments their children have and selecting a school that fits those assignments and and that it is that it is a prayer issue and it is a inviting the lord into that decision making process with that said i think homeschoolers have this wonderful flexibility where they can serve as reading partners at their local school you know our church gives us a list of groceries that are needed 
for students who get their meals at school and don't have meals during the weekend. And so that's a tangible way to meet a felt need at our local schools by going to our grocery store and stocking up and, and filling a bag based off of the items that are needed and giving those items to our local school or serving as a as a English tutor. Uh, there are just a number of ways that I think even with private school, students that that they can partner with a public school where some of the juniors and seniors from a private school are volunteering at their local public schools. I don't think that that selecting homeschooling or private school option has to be divorced from the public school system. I do believe that there are ways for us to engage. Um, So if the Lord is indicating to a family, homeschooling is the right choice for the assignments that I have for your children in the future, praise God for that. That doesn't mean they have to be completely isolated from their local public schools. The obvious question, of course, is, uh, as you are well aware, people who homeschool and even people who send their kids to classical Christian schools, those schools or that homeschooling system only succeeds to the degree that parents are volunteering their time and energies to those school systems. It takes a tremendous amount of energy to do that. Just to be frank, is it realistic to expect families that are have committed to homeschool or classical Christian school education to actually have any time or energy left to help in the public schools? Yeah, I think it's, it's another place of service. It's another option. Um, I think that it would be unrealistic for us to think that homeschoolers would not participate in their local church Bible study or to serve in their church in some capacity um, in a ministry outlet that, you know, serving as a, as a Sunday school teacher or as a youth leader. So I think I, I view it the same way that I think if we're intentional about it, we can make time so that our, our children are seeing our families serve together or that that we are not solely focused on how our individual family is doing, but we we will not allow an injustice to be happening five minutes or 10 minutes down the road and look the other way. So I think it's a great discipleship opportunity. And I think to that point, we need to be engaged in these education equity conversations, these issues around accountability, transparency and reporting, that parents are getting information about their school and districts and the strengths and gaps Um, that exists within those districts and that when they're ready to access that information, it's accessible and it's readable and it's not buried within a longer report and difficult to identify. So I think that we need more Christ followers into this conversation because we we have a mandate to um, love the Lord with all of our minds and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And I think that this is that it connects um, rightly so with these conversations that we need to be a voice for those who may not have a voice. Um, So I think that the issue of transparency and reporting is critical so that when those gaps are identified, community leaders can can say, oh, you know, you need more help with bilingual tutors or with English language learners having a reading a reading partner that can read with them in English because maybe at home they can't read with an adult at English, we could provide that for you. We didn't realize that was a gap, but now we know that because of this transparency and reporting, now we can be a part of the solution instead of being isolated from our public school system. So I, I do think that there are um, ways to engage in that will take some creativity and that will take our attention, like allowing us to spend time before the Lord and asking him to help us know what part we can play so that we're helping move the needle on education equality 
in our country, honoring that Imago Dei that every child is made in the image of God. And so if we if we if that is central to our belief, then we can't just care about the children in our home. We have to care about the children in our communities as well. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive, church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited, customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. keep the hat of the homeschool and classical Christian education hat on just for one more question, and I'll turn it back over to Morgan. Some Christians have withdrawn from the school system primarily because they feel that it's essentially uh, an education system that teaches, frankly, anti-Christian, that they would put it, anti-Christian values or even pagan values, and teaching not just math and the facts of history, but an understanding of how how we see the world. So some would say, an evolutionary worldview is basically teaching students that the world is is arbitrary and it's the survival of the fittest and it has nothing to do with the providence of a good God. Or the teachings about human sexuality suggest that we're a dualism of mind and body. My mind says I'm one thing, my body says I'm another, the mind gets to win. So they withdraw from the system precisely because they think it's anti-Christian and it's teaching people an anti-Christian worldview. So why, what, in what way, or why would you tell them to help a student become successful in that system? Right. So I would encourage them to engage in the culture um, with truth and with love that we are called to be light. And I think that scripture is pretty clear. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Like I said, I'm a strong advocate for all forms of education, whatever the Lord is leading those individual parents to prepare their students for the earthly assignments here that are connected to our eternal purpose. I'm a strong advocate of. In addition to that, we know scripture tells us that we are to be light and we are to be the difference that 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 people we should be like salt. When when we engage with the culture, people should should taste something different. And so how can we be salt if all of our circles of friends and spheres of influences are other believers? Now, I'm not using that as an argument to say, put your children in public school if you're feeling the Lord calling you in a different direction. By all rights, be obedient to the Father. But I also think that we have a biblical justice issue here. One out of four Hispanic students in America are being handed a high school diploma and basically a list of remedial courses because they're not college ready. And in African-American studies, one in 10 African-American students are not college ready. And that's ACT annual report 2015. So I think that it causes the church to look like we are self-focused when we are only thinking or solely thinking about the children in our home and not teaching the children in our home to also serve the full community, because we're placed here to be that light. We we can't look away when there's injustice happening, when students are not, when 
students in our community don't have access to high quality education. And that is the only choice that they have. Perhaps we have different choices because of uh, financial resources or other resources, or, uh, language resources that um, allow us to navigate the American culture at a different at a different level. We we can't forget about families who don't have that choice. And the reality, like I mentioned earlier, is that 92% of America's kids are in public school systems. So I would encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ to obey the Lord. However, schooling, whatever schooling he is indicating to you for the children in your home. And then let's disciple our children to think about others and to love others as ourselves and and to think about what it would be like to not have a choice to be hungry when you're at school or to think that you're dumb because you're in a classroom and you don't understand the words that are being used and how can we serve those children and their parents and their families and be that light in our community. Hey, Morgan, I have an idea. I'd like to nominate Andrea Ramirez as the next Secretary of Education. (laughs) (laughs) I love listening to her talk about it. All right. Well, all you have to do is run for president and win. (laughs) That's how it works. Okay. Well, one thing, Andrea, that I'm really struck by with this idea of school choice, right, the the word choice, is that to some extent choice is, is almost like a political action. And the reason I say that is because I just think about around the time that schools, particularly those affected by Jim Crow, began to be integrated. Many of the Christian, white Christians who were attending these schools um, responded to their schools being integrated by sending their children to private Christian schools instead of staying in schools that were were going now going to be including African-American students as well. And so, yeah, I'm just mulling all of this over because to some extent, the idea that the federal government could say like, no, these schools are going to be integrated under Brown versus Board of Education. And people could say, actually, I'm going to buy my way out of this thing. It becomes not just necessarily like what's best for my child, but there's other there's other historical contexts, you know, context of race in America um, and socioeconomic status to some point that was also happening at the same time. I'm wondering to, to what extent that you think Christians need to be cognizant of all the different reasons why people might be tempted to leave a school or what would make a, a school, a quote unquote, a good fit for their child. What is even a good school or a bad school, or a good school district, or a bad school district, all these different types of things that we will say and throw around, but maybe don't always unpack. Yeah, I think that more voices need to be added to that conversation. I think that um, community leaders that represent different demographics within the community need to have a voice at the table to determine what makes a good school, what what is success here, and then look at the best practices of other states so they're not in they're not siloed to think that they're excelling and then get stunned like many of these states did by the NAEP score, which is I'm going to go ed reform nerd on you, but the National Assessment of Education. Um, programs. So what happened was states graded themselves according to their own proficiency um, standards and assessments. How long ago was this? This was, it's called the honesty gap. It's been running probably for about three to four years. So basically states reported how they were doing. And then this national report card put out and it's termed NAEP, but the national report card 
gave a more realistic picture. There was a gap, and they called it the honesty gap because there was a gap between what states were reporting and then how they measured up with a national report card. And so, like, I heard a presentation by one of the superintendents in Mississippi and what they're doing differently to ensure that that doesn't happen again, that they are putting accountability measures in place and that they are ensuring that they are measuring proficiency and growth so that they can really get a holistic picture of how their districts and schools are doing. Um, High standards are such a a large part of this conversation because in some cases, the United States is ranked like 25th on some subject matters globally. And we pour funds into our public education system and we've got to ensure that those standards are consistent. We don't want to inadvertently um, create the second class citizenship. And I think that that's what you're referring to of, of buying your way out. I think as believers, we have to have frank conversations with one another and in prayer to to ask the Lord to search our hearts and to say, are there any remnants of prejudice in my life? And I think we would be surprised if we if we really went there and asked the Father to help show us maybe what we don't want to see. Because I think in some cases, we we use tokenism. Like, well, I have one Black friend or I have one Hispanic friend, and so I'm I'm not racist or I'm not prejudiced. But, but really inviting the Father to help us to see where we've looked the other way when we needed to get take a step forward instead of taking a step back. And I think that is completely possible to do and still choose homeschooling or a private school or a private charter school. I think that, you know, for example, my mom decided and my dad decided to homeschool my brothers because they were brought into our family through adoption at the age of five and seven. And she didn't get that preschool time with them, that toddler time with them, and felt like she needed a little more time at home to nurture that relationship. So she homeschooled them for a couple of years and then they went to a local public school and then later on a private school. So I think that there are different reasons. I think that a part of living in the United States is that we have that liberty and I I think we should champion that liberty. But at the same token, the reality is there are many students that are graduating high school thinking they're ready for college and they're not. And there are the majority, 92% of America's children are in public schools. So as a church, we need to figure out how to champion the ability to choose uh, additional options, um, in particular, if the Lord's leading us to choose those options and figure out and wrestle with the question how we personally can get involved to strengthen public schools. And I would just add, not everyone equally enjoys all of those options, depending on what part of the country you live in um, or the size of your town or city. You've mentioned it a couple times, and the one thing I've appreciated about your approach, and I think it's the approach of the, the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Coalition, and that is, as opposed to some advocates of minorities being treated better in schools, there does seem to be a tone at times or even a direct advocacy that somehow standards have to be lowered or flattened so that everyone can be included but you keep on insisting that standards ought to be raised so that Hispanics in particular can be included in American society. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. You know, Reverend Sam Rodriguez, the president of the NHCLC, used to be an English teacher. And, and I love the way that he phrases it. He says, you know, if we have one classroom reading Shakespeare and the other one reading Dora the Explorer, that's unfair. We are creating a second class citizenship and um, we're trying to be merciful, but we're really not. We're, we're setting students up for failure. So we need consistent high standards across the board 
recognizing and remaining cognizant that some of some of ch- these children and parents are going to need additional resources in order to reach those standards. And we've got to be compassionate as believers to help create and, and provide some of those resources. And sometimes they're human resources. They need reading partners that, that can teach them how to speak English or how that word is pronounced or synonyms for a word so that when they take the ACT and they see a word that says fern and they're only familiar with plant, maybe they have had a conversation with an English speaker that is dominant in in English that is exposing them to new terminology. So I think that that we can be a part of the solution and sometimes it's going to be creative solutions, but we have to enter the conversation. Um, Going back to what Morgan said, as far as when they kind of saw this white flight, that we have to be cautious about about being so focused on taking care of our own children that we isolate ourselves from the beautiful children made in God's image in our community. And I think that it's a great discipleship opportunity for the children in our home to connect the dots, to say, we're thinking about what's best for our family. We're praying about how to school you. And in addition, we're praying about how to make a difference in our community for the Lord. I would challenge you on the notion that we have to be really creative. I've, uh, to be frank, a self-centered person like myself who's very uncreative at least found the energy and time to tutor for a couple of years in a program that my daughter ran for refugees uh, who had precisely the same issues. They were struggling with English. They were came here and lost a couple of years of school. They just needed They just needed help. So that doesn't take tremendous imagination or... <laughs> Or creativity. It just takes a matter of, the, and there's tutoring programs all over the city here in, in the suburbs of Chicago. You can pick one, you can pick the hour of the, the, the afternoon, you, you're free to do it. It's it's just not that hard. Yeah, willingness and, and to look for those needs that are within the community. One thing that I think is so interesting when we're talking about standards, right? It's like standards for what? Like, why are we measuring these things? Why are they important? Is college that thing, you know, that we are measuring towards. By the way, I come from a family of public school educators. And so in the back of my head, I'm just thinking of college readiness the whole time, which my dad has said so many times. But anyway, in your view, Andrea, is it important that every child go to college and earn a college degree? I believe that students should have choices to go to college. I think that that they shouldn't not go to college because they are not college ready. But if they are feeling called to a mission trip in a different location or serving in a different capacity, that they are making that choice, not because it's a last resort, but because that's where they feel the Lord leading them. So I think that when I when I consider college readiness, it is important to be college ready so that you can make and own that decision versus that being the decision given to you. You know, I, I think that the Lord calls us to love him with all of our minds. And I think that's different for each person because each brain is is different. He's given us different skill sets and we are a diverse body of that belongs to him. And so I what I encourage folks to do is to ask the Lord to to commit their brain to him. Father, you made my brain, you made my mind. It belongs to you. What do you want to do with it? What do you want me to do with it today as I write a research paper or as I study, help this to be worshipful. Help me to know what you want me to learn from this lecture that is going to serve you. And I think the Lord honors 
that that invitation. He shows up. I mean, in my PhD, I asked him to do that with statistical analysis, and I was shocked to find the Lord helping me to see things using SPSS, you know, statistical software and helping connect the dots with scripture. You know, like I, I think that he will show up and and wow us, but we have to be in that posture and invite him and be willing. And and I think that that's, that's a critical piece. So I would say with the college readiness piece, I, I, I want students to have the choice to go to college, that they can prey on it, and that it's they're not just being limited in their choices. Yeah, that's got to be the most nerdy spiritual example I've ever heard, but it sounds wonderful. <laughs> it's a truth. It's a truth. So we're kind of backing into a question that has been underneath this entire conversation, and I'd like to hear your view and what you think the United States consensus is. What is the purpose of education, especially public education? What What is it supposed to accomplish? I think it's supposed to help students become global contributors. I think we saw some incredible cross-cultural traction uh, when the internet exploded. And so we have opportunities to influence the world in ways that we have, that decades in the past have not. Now you're speaking as we as Christians or we as United States citizens. United States citizens, but I think I mean I think we can all agree we're we're Christ followers first, and that that we are grateful to be a part of this beautiful country of the United States of America and be citizens. So as American citizens, though, or as America's children, because not all of America's children are American citizens within these public schools, and so I think that we have an opportunity to produce global contributors, that that children that are educated in our country, when they go out into the world, that they are not solely global competitors, but that we are global contributors and that we are impacting the world in in a positive way. I think when, when we look at it from our biblical worldview, that we are living out our God-given potential. It's, it's not just about competing globally, but it is about the contribution that we can make when we put our minds towards problems that the globe is facing and we create or come up with strategies that work. And it makes a difference for a child who is not being educated right now and, and would not be educated 10, 20 years from now until you have someone who values liberty and values education and values people because they are made in the image of God. Um, so I think that that public education allows us to instill values of freedom and and you know liberty and can help produce these incredible adults who are are global contributors. Yeah, the reason why I asked the question about whether that's a United States or a Christian goal is because if I can push back again. It does sound like a wonderful Christian vision, but it seems to me that the United States self-interest is public education ought to produce good American citizens who can contribute ethically and economically to the welfare of the United States. Isn't that really the point of public education in the United States? There would be those that share that view. Sure. I, I think so. I think it's it's hard to just think as an American citizen and not think as a believer. But, you know, I, yeah, I think that we want contributing citizens and we want we want to produce individuals that are going to showcase the very best of our country but i also think that the premise of public education was that all children in the community matter and that we need to ensure that they're learning important subjects that are going to make them successful in this country and and in be, and beyond in particular in light of the fact that now 
Um, we have so many cross-cultural interactions available to us and, and more so for the students that will be adults in the next two, three decades. One way of putting it might be what we're, at, what we're trying to teach in the United States is not white American citizens, but we are trying to understand ourselves as a country that's much more diverse ethnically and racially than it's ever been. And education has to take that into account. And I, I do believe that as believers, you know, we understand that we're equal at the cross and that Jesus came to die for each of us. And so our value of every person infuses our perspective of why every person should have access to quality education. Different ed reformers and different advocates of public education come to the conversation for different reasons. But I think those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ come to it with that understanding that he's made every person in his image and values each person and therefore we should as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys, for this really great discussion. It makes me want to talk about education even more. All right. Which is always <laughs> great when that happens. I want to remind all of our listeners that you can help support this podcast by subscribing to CT Magazine. We have set up a special page that will allow you to get a discounted subscription plus a bonus download put together by our podcast team, which is myself, Mark Alley, and Richard Clark, who has joined the show a couple of times as a host. You can only get that deal at orderct.com slash quick to listen. It's orderct.com slash quick to listen. And I really want to thank all of you who have shown your love for the podcast by subscribing in the past. Thank you so much. This is the time of the show we are having a segment that we have on every so often. It is called Slow to Speak, and it is essentially a time where we read some listener feedback aloud and just give it a chance to be on here. So last week we had David Prince on here to talk about the Super Bowl. Unfortunately, David's team lost. Maybe you didn't hear about it. Don't think about it. It was awful. Anyway, but before that happened, we did get some feedback about the nature of the show, and I'm just going to read two different listener comments about that. Again, thank you for giving us this feedback, and I'll remind everyone where they can do leave some feedback for this week's episode after we're done. So the first comment came from Sam Levy. Hi, Sam. And Sam wrote, there's a lot of goodness to football and sports in general, and the three of you did a really great job of highlighting and celebrating those aspects of the game. But there were some significant oversights, especially considering the subject of the conversation is a sport created to mimic war. To criticize the apparel worn by cheerleaders, then celebrate the glorification of the military that surrounds the Super Bowl is deeply questionable. There was nothing mentioned about the ways the NFL has protected perpetrators of domestic violence and sexual assault and done next to nothing for the victims of those crimes and nothing about the fact that the Super Bowl Sunday is is perennially one of the biggest nights for the sex trafficking industry. These are two horrific examples of sin and brokenness that actually evidence an opposite reality to the, quote, soft, not rugged culture Mr. Prince spoke about in parentheses as if, quote unquote, ruggedness is inherently a virtue and softness a consequence of the fall. To look at the Super Bowl through a gospel lens, we've got to take a closer look at the things that are problematic and antithetical to the gospel. Thank you, Sam, for that. I'm going to read another comment here from Bill. And Bill, I'm sorry if I don't say your last name correctly. I believe it's Bill Lottenschlager. Bill writes, I have been a football fan for my whole life, but now can't justify watching events where 40% of the participants may suffer traumatic brain injuries as the result. And the NFL denied any connection until last year. Myself and many other former fans can no longer, with a clear conscience, support the damage to the human body done for the sake of our amusement. Yeah, those are great comments. Uh, gives me an idea for future shows because actually David had a whole chapter on the concussion 
issue. And I'm not as well read on it as I might be, but it struck me that he made a number of arguments that suggested that the problem might be different than we imagine it to be. And it would be good to have him and an expert on concussions to kind of talk about that and what actually is the problem and how extensive actually is it. And then another question that's brought up is the question of sex trafficking at the Super Bowl. Again, I've read mixed returns on that, whether that's whether it's actually that's true or that's a, a urban myth. And that would be good to kind of flesh out. But there's no question that there is this mixture of hypersexuality uh, that is associated with the Super Bowl that does deserve its criticism. And to be fair to David, he's not in favor of any of that at all. So, but uh, we could have gone deeper into all that stuff. So those are very great. Those are great comments. Just for people who do want to read David's section um, where he addresses concussions, I'll just give you the name of his book again. It's called In the Arena. And our guest last week was David Prince. As a reminder, again, we welcome all of this feedback. You can give it to us at facebook.com slash ctpodcast. We're also on Twitter at ctpodcast. So thanks for everyone who left those thoughtful remarks. We appreciate it. All right. This is the time of the show. It's called Precious Moments. Maybe you know the drill at this point, but it's a time where people can share something that is making them happy this week and we can laugh some more. Maybe, hopefully. I hope that happens. Andrea, would you like to go first? Yeah, so I have two. I have a kindergartner, and my husband is a bully prevention speaker, and so he does school assemblies across the country. And my kindergartner got to go with her dad on a daddy-daughter trip and close out um, his school assembly. So she ended up speaking to roughly about 2,000 kids, <laughs> which was incredible. I have it on video. Proud mom here. Um, so super excited just to see her following her dad's footsteps. And, and but she loves the microphone. She does. She really, she got all of those kids just um, yelling and excited. And so that was exciting to watch. And then two, we hit our 50th episode of the Raising the Standard show on TV and Salsa. And so I get the joy of hosting that show. We had Mark on and um, we, we answer the question, how does our faith in Christ impact our view of education and educational issues? And you can catch us on Monday night, um, six o'clock central and Friday mornings, 10 a.m. Central, and you can find out more information at faithineducation.com. Are you on social media at all? Yeah, I um, our Facebook um, page is called Raising the Standards. It's, a, it's obviously a good show because they had me as a guest, and it, didn't, it did not fall off the end of <laughs> the show. You're so friends. <laughs> it was so good. Morgan's next on the guest list. Would love it. Mark? My precious moment hopefully will happen this weekend. I am going to go up to Wisconsin and get a couple of days of fly fishing in. So we'll see how that goes. I might come back really frustrated. Does that mean you like stand in the water the whole time? Yeah, stand in the water and cast a fly. And it tends to get glorified in movies like The River Runs Through It, about a wonderful yeah, thing I'm it is. Yeah, I'm thinking Brad Pitt like, with yeah. the fly fishing. It sounds so romantic, but it's really grown men who are intelligent men who think the greatest thing in the world is to fool a fish whose IQ is about five. (laughs) 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 But for some reason, it's just a lot of fun. It's very relaxing. Well, you're also outside. It's awesome to be outside. You're outside and it requires, it's one of those hobbies that requires complete concentration to do it well, which means the rest of the world goes away. Have you ever done ice fishing? No, I haven't done that. But that I think ice fi- oh, no, ice fishermen are going to just blast me for this. But it strikes me that ice fishing is mostly about the fellowship with other men and having something that warms your inside while you're fishing. Don't you just like sit on the ice though? I thought yeah. you sit there by yourself. Okay. No, but you just sit in a tent and there's a fire and there's usually a bottle of this or that. And wow! All right, ice fishers, please respond. Um, are you online? I am not online, but I do publish something called the Galley Report every week, which you can receive for free, which I point to links and make comments about those links. 
to help us all think more deeply about our faith and how it interacts with the public square. And that can be, you can subscribe to there by going to christianitytoday.com slash the galley report, or just read it there. It's a little more convenient to get it in your mailbox though. My precious moment is the fact that I have a friend who runs a compost business. Yeah, he lives in Chicago. He's one of six different groups that compost out there. And basically they pick up people's food scraps from their business or their home and they go ahead and recycle them. And he was giving a talk last night at a dinner that tries to do a lot of like locally sourced products. And the dinner was really expensive, but I got him for free. So I'm going to tell you some of the things that we ate at the dinner. It was so great. We had the best pastrami I've ever had. I don't know what to say. It wasn't like the pastrami that you get like from a deli. We had roast beef there. We had roasted carrots and leeks, which I like ate so many of those. Those were great. And sweet potatoes and regular potatoes. And then for dessert, they gave us this like salted caramel marshmallow ice cream yellow nice. butter dish brown butter dish it was really good and all this food came from 80 percent of the stuff that's at the restaurant is locally sourced and one of the other interesting things that was said is so most of the people that were there were from chicago or i would say like maybe like evanston which is just directly north of chicago and they were just saying like this is really cool that we do this like locally sourced stuff because we're actually building relationships with people downstate in more rural areas and so it's becoming this way for us to have like closer relationships with people that we may not necessarily have interacted with before you know it's kind of crossing the urban rural divide and because many of these farmers who do live in rural areas have to drive into the city and they've built really close relationships with them and they told stories of some of the people that they've become close with guys i am online at mep a Y N L. That is it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is a production of Christianity Today. Our other podcasts exist on iTunes, um, and you can search for them via Christianity Today. Remember to go to orderct.com slash quick to listen to subscribe to our publication. Our producers are Richard Clark and Cray Allred, and you can subscribe to our show on iTunes and SoundCloud. Thank you everyone for leaving really thoughtful reviews on the show. That was always encouraging to read those. Guys, we will see you all next week. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.